great love, for your great mercy. We thank you so much for who you are, for what you have done for us and what you are doing in our lives. We thank you that you are the Holy One and that your great glory and power we can bow before, knowing that you sovereignly rule and direct the affairs of man, God. We thank you for your word that is true today and always will be. And Lord, may our ears be attentive to your voice. May our hearts be surrendered to your conviction, and may we hear your word and live your word for your glory and for your honor, God. I pray against every distraction of our minds and our hearts, and I pray that we would be fixed on you as we worship you with our hearts and minds listening to your word. We pray this all in Jesus' good name, and everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you do not have an outline, just raise your hand, and the ushers will get you an outline. want to be sure that you can follow along in the introduction of the sermon, and we also want to be sure that you're able to take notes. And as always, I encourage you as a disciple of Jesus, sit down with someone, um, share what you're learning uh, with them, and use this as a tool to help you not only to grow, but to help someone else grow in their faith. And so if you look at your outline there, as we have looked at God's faithfulness in Israel's past, as we see this past riches in Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 30, uh, we see God's faithfulness in Israel's present, which is what we dealt with in the last few weeks, and that is in Romans 9, 30, all the way to chapter 10, verse 21, we will now see God's faithfulness in Israel's future restoration. And so what we're going to see now is we're going to see, or we've already looked at the past, the riches that Israel has had because of who they are, because of Abraham's faith, and because of him stepping out. And then we've also seen Israel's rejection, predominantly, mostly, um, those that were Israelites. They were, they, they, were, they were rejecting of the gospel. They were rejecting of Jesus. And so we look now to the future, and we see what is God going to do? Is God finished with his people? And I want you to think about this right here. God's faithfulness is rooted in the fact that God doesn't forget his promises and he doesn't forsake his people. God's faithfulness is rooted in the fact that he doesn't forget his promises and he doesn't forsake his people. God never forgets anything that he promised. Anything that God has said, he will bring to pass. He doesn't forget promises. You know, I, growing up, sometimes we forget things, right? Parents forgot stuff. You know, I, I, I know that that happens for me as a dad. There are things that we forget. Our kids don't forget. Come on now. Right? They don't forget, like, well, you said this, and they remind you of what you said, and then you just, you know, you can appeal to age and be like, yo, I'm old, man, you know, so I forgot, right? I, I, I don't remember what I said. And so I'm, I'm a guy, I have a pretty good memory. However, my memory does fail me. God's memory never fails him. But not only does he not forget his promises, God does not forsake his people. He never leaves his people. He never abandons his people. He remembers his promises. He doesn't abandon his people. Today we're going to talk about God. God's not finished in dealing with Israel. The last thing here, because God is faithful to Israel, because God is faithful, Israel can know that he is not finished with them. See, this is a beautiful promise, right? Like chapter 11 has to be, and, and listen to me when I say this, this is so very important. We've been talking for chapter 9 and chapter 10 and now chapter 11. And I've tried to drive this point home as we have looked at this together. You cannot look at this outside of looking at this being applicable and being specifically applied to the people of Israel, to the children of God called Israel. It has to be them. God is communicating with them. And because God is faithful, 
Israel can know, right? Why, why is this history even matter to us, right? Because some of you, I, I know this because I know, I've, I've sat in your seats. Some of you are like, man, come on, Bishop, I don't want to hear about, is, about Israel anymore, right? Like some of y'all think that, like, I, I don't want to hear about Israel anymore. But listen to me. It is so important. If it wasn't important, it wouldn't be in the Bible. Paul would not have put it in there. It's there for us. Why? So we can look at Israel. We can look at God's dealing with them, and we can realize that God is the same God that we're dealing with. That God is the same God who is talking to us. The same God who makes promises to us is the same God who's dealt with Israel. That means that that God has a track record, and the way you find that track record is by looking at the way that he's dealt with Israel. And what we find here is that because God is faithful, Israel can know that God is not finished with them. And as a result, this is important for us, we can rest assured that the same faithfulness God has shown to Israel will be extended to us. The same faithfulness that God showed to Israel, the same way that God was faithful to Israel is the same way he is going to be faithful to his people now that call upon his name for salvation, to his people now that put faith in him. He is going to be faithful because that is who he is, and he's going to extend that same faithfulness to us. So this morning, think about this. Great hope is found in God's unfinished work because it means he's still at work. Think about that. Great hope is found in God's unfinished work because it means he's still at work. And so you guys know I, I, I do my sermon prep and I finish everything around Thursday, um, between Thursday. Typically I'm done before Friday. Sometimes it goes until like this week. I think I sent the message over at like 3 o'clock in the morning on Friday, so it went over into Friday. But nonetheless, Thursday is the day that I finish and I write this stuff down. Well, on Friday I had a meeting, and when I had this meeting, it was a meeting where I was, um, it was revealed to me in that meeting, or it was, I was reminded, should I say, that I am an unfinished work. Are you here? I was reminded in that meeting that I was an unfinished work, that God is still doing work in me. So when I read this yesterday, as I was going over it, these words meant so much to me, right? Like, it's great. Because you, you come out of a meeting, like, I don't know about you, but when you come out of a conversation, and, and, and it's like almost depressing, right? When you look in the mirror, and you're like, man, I got a long way to go. It, you know, you can, you can easily, like, kind of, you know, start sinking in your seat, start feeling discouraged. I mean, at one point in, in the meeting, I was like, well, I'm just going to resign. It'll just be easier for me to, you know, whatever. But, you know, all jokes aside, the, the thing is, when you look at the unfinished work, hey, there's great encouragement in that. Why? Because that means God is still working. If you're not, listen, if he's done with you, guess what? You're in heaven. Hello. If he's finished, then, then you're in heaven. You're with him. But God is not finished, and so we are encouraged by the fact that his, and his unfinished work because it means that he is still at work. And so the first thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this, say, Paul is proof of God's future work. Paul is proof of God's future work. And so chapter 11, just so we can have some kind of, um, you know, we, we, we can have a baseline to go by. What Paul does in chapter 11 is he calls for five witnesses or five proofs is what we're going to call them. Five proofs that God is not finished with Israel. And he is the first one that he calls to, the, to, to be that proof or that witness that stands up. It is himself. In verse 1, what does he say? He says this, I say then, so Paul again, he's wrapped 
wrapping this up. What I want you to know is that chapter 11 is the end of the indicatives of the whole book of Romans, right? Y'all remember the indicatives, right? What God has done, what, what has happened in the gospel, that's what those indicatives are. Chapter 11 ends this, and then we move from chapter 12 to the rest of the book, and we deal with the imperatives. We deal with what we are called to do as a result. And so what Paul is doing is he's wrapping this up. He's bringing in his closing statement, and his closing statement in his dealing with Israel is what? Is that God is not finished with them, and so he says this, the first witness, he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? And so he's saying, is God done with them? Is God finished with them? Is God, is, has God decided that he is, he is no longer dealing with Israel? Is that what God has decided? All of a sudden. And let me tell you why this matters. Because if you go back into church history, what you find is you find this thing. It's, a, it's not a biblical theology, but it is called replacement theology. And replacement theology tells you this. It says that Israel is done. Once Jesus comes and he dies, the Israel, right, the original Israel that God is through with them, God is no longer dealing with them because now we are the fulfillment and we are the new Israel. That is what replacement theology says in a nutshell. The reason why this is important to understand that that is not true is because when you read your Bible, there's plenty of prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled specific to the nation Israel. It's not us. We don't become the nation Israel, right? That isn't what God does, right? There's a spiritual Israel for sure. We're going to see that clearly. But what, we, but what we realize here is that God is not done. And so Paul says, is he done? Has God cast his people away? He goes on, he says, certainly not. One of Paul's favorite words, right? He does these rhetorical questions. He's like, is God, has he cast him away? He's like, nope, absolutely not. May it never be is what he's saying here. He's excited. He's like, no, no, no. Like, that's what he's communicating there. No way. There's no way that God has done with his people. Why? He says, for I also am an Israelite. That's his nationality. Of the seed of Abraham, that's his heritage. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that's his lineage. And so he's like, listen, if there's a person that's an Israelite, it's me. And guess what? If God is done with Israel, there's no way I'm the preacher to the Gentiles. Hello. There's no way that I am the one. But Paul is calling himself. And so he's saying, listen, I am a witness to this. God has not rejected them. And why does this matter? Because remember when we go back to Romans chapter 9, verse 6, has God's word failed? Remember that question that Paul started to answer? Guess what? He's still answering the same question. God's word has not failed. God has not stopped dealing with Israel. He has not forgotten about his people Israel. And when Paul calls himself as a proof or as a witness to this, Paul is not the only Israelite that has been saved. And we'll see that in a moment. But nonetheless, we must understand this. God is faithful to the ones he calls and who respond to him in faith like Abraham. You got that? We have to understand that. What Paul communicates for us and lets us understand is that God is faithful when we call upon him for salvation. When we call upon him in faith, God is faithful. The same way that he was to Abraham is the same way he is faithful to us. And here is why Paul, as being a proof, is so important. Because Paul is a great example of the extremities to which God will go in order to save his people, Israel. Now think about this. When you read your Bible, a lot of people don't do this, and, and I don't mean a lot of people don't read their Bible, but a lot of people, they, well, a lot of people don't, but anyway, a lot of people, when they're reading in the New Testament and they read about Paul's life, right, what they want to do is they want to connect the way that Paul was saved, and they want to make it something that is universal and happens to everyone. Let me ask you a question. How many of you came to Jesus because a bright light shone around you and you heard a voice from heaven? Anyone? 
Here's a test for you. This is something for you to do throughout your week, just so you can test to see if what I'm saying is accurate. Go ahead and ask every single person that you know that is a believer in Jesus and ask them if they came to Christ because a bright light shone around them and a voice came from heaven. That isn't what happened because that is not normative. Now listen, I consider myself to have an abnormal um, testimony of how Jesus brought me to faith. But there's a lot of people that I know that their story is not like that. It is not that way, the way that God brings them. You know why God, God called Paul the way that he did? Because Paul had a unique calling, not just to salvation, but a calling to be the messenger. Are you here? That is why God went to that extremity. But here's what you have to realize is that God uses Paul as an example because in the future, not yet happening, in the future, God is going to cause some lights to come from heaven. As a matter of fact, you read the prophetic words of what God is going to do. There are going to be some extreme things like when Jesus comes down and his feet touch down on the top of Mount of Olives and it's like this earthquake occurs. Guess what's going to happen? Every Jew that has been waiting for the Messiah, their eyes are going to be open and they're going to be like, wow, that's the Messiah we've been waiting for. Every practicing Jew that is in their word, they're going to know, that, wait a second, those words are coming to pass. This is the king that we've been waiting for. God promises that he's going to deal with Israel. And so Paul is a great example of that. The second thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, Elijah is proof of God's future work. And so the first proof that we have, the first one that Paul says is proof that God is not done with Israel is himself. The second proof is that of Elijah. And so this is what the word says here. It says in chapter, in verse 2, it says this. It says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left they seek my life but what does the, the, the divine response say to him it says i have reserved for myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to baal so i just want to pause for a moment and i want us to take an intentional detour Right, and I, I'm a guy. I, you know, I, I like I take rabbit trails sometimes when I preach, and I, you know, go off this way. But I want to go on an intentional detour for a moment because I want us to look at the first verse there, verse two. God has not cast away His people, whom He foreknew. Whom he foreknew, this is a big word, right? This is one of those big theological words that we get into a lot of disagreements about what it means. But here's what I want to do. I just want us to look at what the word means so we can understand this. Because he says he foreknew a specific people. First and foremost, we have to know who the context is talking about. Who he's talking about here is his people are Israel. We know this because of the way that Paul has introduced this. He's talking about the people Israel. He's not talking about people in general. So first of all, that's one clue that we know. He's talking about that foreknowledge. Here is the second thing that I want us to look at, just the definition of the word. The question naturally arises, what does it mean to be foreknown? What does it mean to be foreknown? And so here's what I want you to understand. The word, the Greek word that is used here is the word progenosko in the Greek. It is used five times in the New Testament, only five times in the New Testament. The first time that it is utilized in the book of Acts, chapter 26 and verse 5, and it is speaking of Paul, and he is, not, he is Paul speaking about the Jews who knew him before. They knew Paul's life before. That's what that verse is talking about there. The next time that we see it introduced is in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. 
which we go through. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. And he predestined them what? To be conformed to the image of his son that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so we see that there. And so what we have here is those are the, that definition there or that application is to God knowing something. Then we have it here in Romans 11 verse 2 that God foreknew his people. And then we have it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 where it speaks of Jesus being foreknown and then being revealed. He was foreknown in eternity past and then he is revealed in this present time the mystery of the gospel in him. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17 it is Peter who is communicating to the people as he's wrapping up that letter to them and telling them you know these things therefore live a certain way. And so what we have is we have three applications to the knowledge of God being former and then two applications to us having knowledge. So what does the word mean? It is a, it, it is a, it is a word that has two parts to it. So it is a, a, a word that is pro. The first one is pro, and that means before. The second part of the word is ginosko, which means to know. So what does the word mean? The word simply means, it simply means to know before or to have knowledge before. It doesn't say when that knowledge is unless there is something else in the sentence that communicates to us what God is talking about. And so when we look at God's people, God foreknew them. When did God know them? He knew them. Obviously, God's knowledge is beyond anything else. But we also know that God knew them in what? In Abraham. Because that is Abraham who God calls. And notice what God does all the time. This to me is amazing. When God communicates to Israel, you know what he says to them? Because of your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he always goes back to them. He doesn't say because of, he says because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or because of David, I'm going to do this. He always goes back to when he made a covenant with someone. That, that's the place where he goes. That's the knowledge, the place that he has. Okay, so let's move on to what the word means. In all cases, it means to foreknow. It does not mean foreordain. That's not what this word means. The word always means to foreknow. It signifies pre-science, not pre-election. Very important for us to grasp. And when you look at this definition, I want you to understand really quickly so you can write this down if you're taking notes. Um, when, where, where, where am I getting this definition from? It is from a New Testament word study, and the word study is by a guy of the name of Marvin R. Vincent. So you can write that down. It is Marvin R. Vincent is the one who is the author of this New Testament word study. He breaks down the Greek, helps us to understand what exactly the Greek words mean. I am no Greek scholar, and so I sit there, I read, I study, and I dig into that. And so what he communicates clearly is that when you look at what this word means, it simply means pre-knowledge. And so listen to this definition that he also gives. Now, this definition is one that is that 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 I th they it's supposed to be the easiest definition. But when you read the definition, you're gonna be like, nah, this is this is not an easy definition. Amen. Are we talking about like understanding your dad? Or are we talking about understanding God? Who are we understanding? We're understanding God, right? That's who, we, that's who we are understanding. So listen to the definition. It is God's being aware of his plan by means of which before the subjects are destined by him to salvation, he knows whom he has to destine there to. So this is the definition. This is the practical working out. This is the common sense is what the writer said. You notice the asterisk there? I didn't put the thing there because, because there was reasons for that. But here's what I want you to grasp. Look at what he, what, what he says here. It is, this is Meyer who says this, it is God's being aware in his plan, it is God's knowledge, right, by means of which before subjects are destined to buy him to salvation, he knows whom he has to destine thereto. 
This is what this word means in its basic, um, in, in its in its basic understanding, which is not basic for us, but for God. God is beyond our pay grade. I think. I don't know. You tell me. I would think so, right? So third thing that I want to add to this is here. And I said this when we went through Romans chapter 8, verse 29, but I kind of passed over it. So the reason why I wanted to take this detour today is because the word comes up again. God has not forsaken his people whom he foreknew. And so who is it that he foreknew? We are talking about Israel here in this particular context. Here's what I said when we deal with Romans 8, 29. In God is no before. In God there is no before. So, 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 so just track with me here. There is no before in God. When God reveals himself to us, there are so many times we talk about God. We know that God is spirit, right? Does a, does a spirit have a body? Please say no. No. A spirit doesn't have a body. However, the Bible says things like God's hand, right? God's nostrils. It, it, gives, it gives certain characteristics to God that are helping us to understand him but that's not, that's not, that's for us, right? That's not really the picture that we have, or else we have, we have some contradicting information here. And so when we talk about this, here's what we got to grasp, is that all the past, present, and future are simultaneously present to him. We can't get that. We don't understand that God is not waiting for the future to happen. He's waiting for you to get to the future because he's already there. The future is not something new to him. He's not walking into the future with you. He's been waiting for you in the future. And so when we talk about God being omnipresent, okay, we got, when it comes to God's knowledge, God, everything, past, present, future, it is all one thing to him. It is not something that God is beyond our pay grade. He doesn't operate the way that we do. However, God has to speak to us in language that will do what? It should be language that blows our minds. Hello, somebody. It should be language that makes us, makes us pause for a moment and say, wow, really, is that God? And so let's go on with the, with the definition here. And so the operation, so in presenting the two phases, right, which is the operation of God's knowledge that God foreknew, and again, this is commentary on Romans 8, 29, or his de decretory will, his predestination, the succession of time is introduced, not as metaphysically true, but in concession to human limitation of thought. And so here's the deal. The fact is, God speaks to us about these things. And again, I just showed you, it's used five times here. That's the, that, that's the root word, prognosco, which is used five times. And then there is a derivative that is utilized two times that is not mentioned here. And so when you go and study, you're going to find seven times that the word is translated as foreknown. And, and here's what we have to grasp, is that God is not trying to make us understand something fully because we never will. He's trying to let us know how great he is. And so how, how does this apply to our lives, this little detour that we took? To the child of God, it is mind-blowing, or it should be to think, that God foreknew us. He knew us in our rebellion, even in our hypocrisy. He knew us. Listen, when I say that, this is what I mean. Rebellion, that's when you didn't know Jesus. Hypocrisy, that's after you came to him and you were acting a fool. He knew you in all of that because before you got there, he knew you were going to get there. Before you did that, he knew you were going to do that. And this is what he does. He still calls you. He still 
calls you. He still saves you. He still makes you his son or his daughter. He makes us his people. And the same way this applies to the children of Israel. God foreknew Israel. He knew all of their mess. He knew everything that they were going to do. Nothing was new to God in the way that Israel was. He knew the way that that, that Isaac was going to be. He knew the way that Jacob was going to be. He knew the way that the brothers of Joseph were going to be. He knew the way that Israel was going to be even after they got delivered from Egypt that they were going to go out there and want about it. He knew all of this. He foreknew them. And what does he do? He doesn't reject them. He doesn't forget about them. We're going to see what he does with them. What he does is he shows them he is not finished with them. He goes on to say about Elijah. We just read the story of Elijah, or we just read the, the narrative about Elijah. So you guys know Elijah, right? He's the guy, he's one of the, the main prof- prophetic voices in the Old Testament that we see so much prophetic narrative around his life. And so he's, he's a prophet around the time that Ahaz is king and Jezebel is queen, and really Jezebel is running the nation. Terrible situation. Everybody is so fearful of Jezebel. I want you to think about how, how, how crazy this woman must have been when Elijah was up on the top of Mount Carmel in chapter 8 of 1 Kings here. And the scripture tells us that he's up there with all of these prophets. God does this amazing miracle. Fire comes down, consumes his sacrifice. And then they, they're like, listen, you need to kill all these prophets. Elijah is up there like, yo, we're down with this. A bunch, these are men that they're killing, okay? Elijah's not fearful. However, Elijah gets a letter from Jezebel saying, listen, the gods do so to me if I don't do to you what you've done to these prophets. And homeboy runs. Now that's like now, now now listen, that's like having like, let's just say, right, like I'm in a room full of dudes and I'm like, yo, we're gonna throw down. It's gonna be like that, right? And then all of a sudden we do all that, and then a woman comes out and says to me, Yo, I'm gonna kill you. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like that don't make no sense, right? Like I just fought all these guys. Like I just did all of this work over here, and yet one woman speaks up, it's because she was crazy, y'all. <laughs> Y'all, y'all know those aunts, those, you, anyway, you, you know you know how that is, right? Ain't, anybody, ain't nobody's mama, but anyway. <laughs> this woman had a track record, right? And so Elijah runs, and when he runs, he's running. He runs away, right? He ends up on top of Mount Horeb, and he's there. And God is there ministering to him, and God speaks to him. And when God speaks to him, God asks him a question. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah's like, Lord. These, these people, they are bowing down to, I, I'm the only one that is left. God's like, listen, you're not, a, you're not the only one that's left. He's like, I have preserved for myself. I'm going to keep these people. There's going to be some, there's going to be a remnant, which is what Paul, he, he correlates this. In verse 5, look what he says. He says, even so then, at this present time, the time of Paul's writing, and even further on, there is a remnant according to the election of grace At this present time, again, we're talking about Israel. There is a remnant of Israel according to the election. Remember, we talked about election. I won't go into that. It means choice. According to the choice of grace, God made a choice. And we have what? We have people like Paul. But we don't just have Paul, right? We have a few other people that that we know that were saved, like the 11 disciples that became apostles, right? Some of them. Remember James, the brother of Jesus? He became an apostle later on. You remember the 3,000 that got saved in the book of Acts right after at, at the day of Pentecost? Remember those? Around 10,000 some odd Jews that were there. I was listening to someone speak, and they said that an estimation of uh, about six years ago was that like 350,000 Messianic Jews are now present. So there is at this present time, 
there is an election of grace. There is a remnant because what does God do? See, Israel, nothing is new under the sun. Israel has always rebelled against God. They rejected his kingship. They rejected his commands. They rejected his prophets. And you know what they did with Jesus? They rejected his kingship. They rejected his commands. They rejected him as the prophet that was to come. They rejected him. Nothing was new. And yet God says what? I am going to preserve a remnant that are going to be what? That are going to be saved in this time, and they are going to be my witnesses at this time. That's what he says. That's what he's communicating. That is what Paul is communicating here for us to understand. And he goes on, he makes it clear. And if by grace, verse 6, that it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise work is no longer work. And so what does God do? He preserved a remnant by the election, by the choice of grace, not by works, by grace. That's it. By the grace of God. Among his people, this is what he does. He goes on and he says this, verse 7. He says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now pause for a moment. Who is he talking? Because again, that word election comes up again. Who is Paul talking about? He's talking about the Jews, is he not? Because he makes a comparison. He says it here. He says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Israel, national Israel. They were seeking for righteousness on their own. We know that from chapter 9, right? They were seeking a righteousness of their own. They have not attained to it, but the elect, what elect? The elect that he just talked about. The remnant that was elect, those have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. This is what God is saying has happened. What he's saying has happened to Israel is what he prophesied Old Testament. Now, let's look at these verses. He says, just as it's written, this Isaiah 29, you can go back there and you can read it. It says this, God has given them a spirit of stupor. I know you use that word every day, don't you? You do, stupid. But anyway, here's the thing, right? It's a bad word. It's a potty word according to Josiah. Um, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And so what happens in Isaiah 29? The people were rebellious against God, and as a result of their sin, what does God do? God stupefies them. Hello. He makes them dumb. How do we know this? This is what it means. He gives them. This is what the Scripture says. God does this. Listen, remember chapter 1? God gave them over to a reprobate mind because they were rebelling against his truth, because they were suppressing the truth. It is the same thing that was happening here that was happening in the days of Isaiah. It's the same thing that was happening in the days of Paul. The spirit of stupor was over them. Eyes that they what? That they should not see and ears that they should not hear. God was judicially, this is judicial hardening. He was judging them because they were rebellious. And then David says, quoting Psalm 69, he says this, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their backs always. And so what is David saying? First of all, David is a type of what? He's a type of Christ. That's why when the scripture talks about touching out the Lord's anointed, the kings that were in the Old Testament, that's what it's talking about there. It's not an application for you and I today in that sense, right? It's, it's, it's not that personal application. But in David's time, David was the anointed one. He was God's anointed. That's who the king was. And therefore, he is the king. And what was happening in that time is that they were rejecting David as king. And so you know what David does? He prays, Lord, this is what he says, let their table become a snare to them. In other words, let their blessings become a snare to them. Let their trap become a snare to them. Let them always be bowed down in slavery because they're rejecting me as king. Therefore, let them experience your wrath. That's what he's saying. Judicial, you know God is okay to judge, right? <laughs> I know everybody says it's not okay to judge. God can judge. Hello. 
God is the judge. And I want to, I'll just say this and we'll move on. But God also gives us wisdom to judge according to righteousness as well. Okay, just like you tell the time, you're just judging. Hello, right? When you drive down the road and you're seeing a sign that says 35 and you look and it says 55, you made a judgment call. Either to rebel or you're going to hit the brakes. Slow down, right? Pray for mercy. I don't know what you know. Anyway. <laughs> While God's election of Israel, his remnant is by grace. This is what we have to get from this. God's election of Israel is by grace. It is by mercy. God's partial hardening or his blinding of Israel was deserved and it was earned in Isaiah's day. It was earned in Jesus' day and in Paul's day and in our days. This is a universal principle. When you rebel against and you reject God's word, you are going to do what? You are going to experience the, the repercussions of that rebellion and that disobedience. It's because you are rebelling against God. You're not just going to rebel against God and like nothing's going to happen. Hello. That's not how that works. They were judicially hardened because of their own rebellion. And so the question is what? How does this apply to me? Again, I said this earlier, that we need to make sure that we learn from Israel. So we must ensure that we are not blinded in our rebellion. We must ensure that we are not setting ourselves up for judgment. We must ensure that we are not setting ourselves up for judgment by rebelling against God. That's why looking at Israel's history is so important. Because these were God's people. You consider yourself a child of God? Have you put your faith in Jesus? I want you to know something. If you rebel against God's authority, you rebel against God's word, guess what? There's repercussions for that. You cannot just live how you want to live. Don't believe in this easy believism and you just, because you said a prayer one day, everything is okay. Listen, God forgives, but there's consequences to sin. Are you here? So, what, so, how, so how is it that we address this? Well, the Bible says what? The book, of, I'll give you three things. You need to be humble. You need to be accountable. You need to be teachable. Hat, if you can remember that. You need to be humble. You need to be accountable. You need to be teachable. The first thing is humility. Let me just say this. It is not God's job to humble us. And when God has to take that role, it's a bad thing for you. It is not God's job to humble us. He says those who exalt themselves, he will humble. That's not like a cute thing. Like, hey, if you exalt yourself, I'm just going to humble you. No, 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 no. That's not what God is saying. That's a judgment there. That's something scary. You don't want God to have to be the one to humble you. You want to do what the scripture says, which is what? Humble yourself before the Lord. That's what we need to be doing. Humble ourselves before the Lord. You, you can write this scripture down. James chapter 4, verse 6 through 10. What does the Bible say here? Quoting from the book of Proverbs, but it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Humility. We have to be humble. The second thing is we have to be accountable. The book of Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1, one of my favorite verses. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment or all sound counsel. And so the first thing is we have to be humble because if we humble ourselves, God will give us grace. But if we are proud, God resists us. I don't want to be resisted by God. If we humble ourselves, we have to be willing to be accountable. We have to be willing not to isolate ourselves and separate ourselves from people, but engage with people so they can speak the truth into our lives. And the third thing is what we need to be teachable. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, this is how God saved me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but what? The fools despise wisdom and instruction. You have to be teachable. You have to be teachable. 
If you are going to see what God wants for your life, you have to be teachable. If you want to ensure that you're not walking down the wrong path, you have to be willing to be corrected, to be directed. You have to be humble. The third thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, Gentiles are proof of God's future, future work, sorry. Gentiles are proof of God's future work. And so the first witness is what? It is Paul himself. The second witness is Elijah. And the third witness that Paul calls upon is the Gentiles. And so he says this in verse 11. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. And again, the they there is Israel. He's talking about Israel. Certainly not. Again, that word certainly not. May it never be. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to Gentiles. Now, if their fall there is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? And so here's what we have to see. The third proof that Paul offers is us as Gentiles. God's saving work in Gentiles isn't proof that God is finished with Israel, but that God, who faithfully included us as he promised, that he is going to faithfully save them as he promised. That's what it is here. When he points to the Gentiles, he's saying, listen, and you're going to see how he talks to us next week when we get into this, and when he deals with the Gentiles there. But he points it out. He makes it crystal clear. It's not that God is done. It's that God has been faithful to include you as Gentiles. Guess what? He's going to be faithful to save the Israelites the way that he said that he would. And so what does God communicate to us? If Israel, now think about this. You've got to think about this. If, if Israel had not rejected Jesus due to their partial and temporary blindness, we would not have a chance of salvation. Their rejection opened the door for us, and our acceptance of Christ becomes the instrument of provocation to salvation that God will use to bring them back. And so here's the, here's the picture. What happens is they reject Jesus, and you know what they do? They crucify him. If they don't crucify Jesus, guess what doesn't happen? Salvation doesn't come to the world. If they don't crucify, if every Jew at that time accepts Jesus, there's, another, there's something else that has to happen. There's a bunch of prophecies that have to be denied and explained away. But because God had a purpose in sending Christ, he brings it to pass through partial judicial hardening. Not all of the Jews, again, we just went through those. And then he does what? He extends that salvation to us, and then he's going to use us as witnesses to them provoked into jealousy because you know what the idea is the idea is when they start to see the blessings that God had for them on you and wait a second I thought we were special no 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 Jesus is special and he makes us all equally special that's the idea here he goes on and says in verse 13 he says where I speak to you Gentiles Inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will be their acceptance but life from the dead? You hear that? If them being partially hardened and temporarily hardened is reconciliation to the world, what is going to be their fullness? You know what it seems like? It seems like Paul understands. Just imagine this. I want you to just imagine this for a moment. Imagine tons of Pauls running around. Imagine what our world would look like. A bunch of people, I have, I have, I have the, the privilege in, in, the, in Bible college to be um, learning from a Messianic Jew. So uh, uh, the, the, one, of the, one of the instructors, he was raised in Judaism, and he's, we're going through the Old Testament, minor prophets and all that. And it is, I, I can tell you something, there is something special about that. When you're hearing somebody who was part of this culture all of their life, they've been indoctrinated all of their life, and then all of a sudden, they start talking to you about Jesus. It's just different. 
It's different. There's no question about it. And listen, I can't be jealous about it. It just is what it is. No matter how much I study, that I won't have what he has because he grew up in that, right? And so what we have here is Paul saying, man, if they're falling, if they're casting, if that brought reconciliation to the world, what will the fullness be? And so here is my closing question. And I want to let you know, I was going to ask you, do you believe that God is not done with you? But here is the question I have. Do you believe God is not finished with Israel and do you care? The reason why I ask that question is because of this. It's because, you know what, we got a bunch of uh, stuff going on here. Y'all see this, this, this amazing, um, we're building a forest here is what is happening. The jungle is coming to us. But we have, we, we, we come to church and we think, man, how is this for me? I already told you how it's for you. You got to be humble. You got to be accountable. You got to be teachable. You need to make sure that you're not following, falling into some kind of rebellion. You need to look at the faithfulness of God to Israel and be like, praise God, you're the one that I serve. You're a faithful one. But the question that I have is not about you. It's not about me because Paul is not talking about us in this context. He is talking about Israel. And so the question is, do you believe that God is not finished with Israel? And do you care? Because we should care. We should care. And so let's take a moment. Let's all stand on our feet if we could. Let's take a moment. Let us pray together not for ourselves. Maybe you know somebody that is Jewish that isn't following Jesus. You can pray for them by name as I pray. And I'll pray in, in general for them as well, but praying that God would humble them graciously and mercifully, not in judgment, that God would bring an opening of their eyes, that God would draw them to himself and to the Messiah, that they would be able to be that voice and that force that God can use greatly to bring change to lives. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you right now. And Father, as we come to you today, we think about your people, Israel. Father, we thank you so much for the remnant elect that you have already preserved, that you have already drawn out of darkness. But God, we pray for the mass of the children of Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But God, we don't just pray for the peace of Jerusalem so we can be blessed. But God, we pray for the, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem that can only come by the Prince of Peace reigning there. God, we pray for salvation of our Jewish uh, ancestors, my God, that those that come from that lineage, my God, that, that, that come from that rich lineage that started in Abraham. Lord, we lift them to you, God. We pray for their deliverance as the apostle himself prays, my God. So we pray today. As he prayed then, God, we pray for their salvation. We pray for their deliverance. We pray that you would bring healing. And God, for those family members that we may have friends, that we may may have neighbors, co-workers that we may have that are Jewish by their descent but have rejected you as Messiah. God, would you graciously open their eyes? God, would you grant them a humble heart? God, would you grant them repentance? God, would you liberate them from their rebellious state before you and from their blinded state before you? God, have mercy upon them and may you use us as a voice, as vessels, Lord God, to bring the good news of salvation unto them. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. Come on, give God a hand of praise.